1: what do you think we're going to be talking about today? Two guesses. Um, And if you said coronavirus, you would be right, except that it's yet another aspect of coronavirus. Today we're going to be talking about coronavirus medics and medicine, the real story. Now, I have been talking on Dr. Carroll's couch about coronavirus since March 3rd. That was pretty much since the beginning of when um, it really started becoming in our national psyche. Uh, I mean, you know, it, it had started originally in Wuhan, China in December, and then it made its way over here. And then by the time the beginning of March came, we had all started worrying about it. So my first show on March 3rd uh, on, on Dr. Carl's couch was, Do You Have Coronavirus Stress Syndrome? And I laid out 10 different symptoms of what I called coronavirus stress syndrome. And it was all fine and dandy, and it was all accurate at the time. And then little by little, uh, as time went by, things that I was saying, had said, were symptoms of an overreaction to coronavirus stress. Turned out, as, (laughs) as COVID, coronavirus, uh, became more prevalent in the U.S. It, came, it turned out that um, when people, more people, got sick and people started dying, it turned out that uh, there was more of a reason to have more concern. That some of the things, in fact, uh, like the most extreme symptom of coronavirus stress syndrome, was um, staying indoors and deciding to wait out the pandemic until it passed. Now, at that time, March 3rd, and even when I repeated the show on March 17th, that still seemed like the most extreme um, thing to do and an overreaction to coronavirus. But now, of course, we're all told (laughs) to stay inside until the pandemic is over. I mean, some states have um, are not telling people to do that. There are varieties in what... um, what states and countries are telling people to do in terms of how much to self-isolate and how strict they are. Uh, like in France, for example, there's a fine. Well, now here in California, um, there is a fine too. I mean, although first first uh, sheriffs and police are giving out warnings and then um, misdemeanors and then there's a fine attached eventually with that too. So... Then uh, the next time I talked about COVID, well, the next time I talked about coronavirus was the next week, March 24th, when I talked about copicide. That was a term that I invented to describe um, suicide caused by fear and desperation related to coronavirus. Whether it was fear of getting the virus itself or loneliness and other psychological problems due to isolation, something that would drive people to the brink. Now, as it turns out, although on that date there had begun to be some people who were committing suicide, there were not only in the States, there was somebody in New York who jumped off a building, um, but there were people also in other countries, in the UK, in India, um, is In Italy, a nurse in Italy thought that she had or actually turned out that she tested positive for coronavirus and she felt so bad that, you know, she was wondering who she gave it to. And she committed suicide. Uh, There was a woman in the UK who a young woman who um, didn't have wasn't positive for it, but she just couldn't live in a life. Uh, where she wasn't having more social interaction. That was so much of what filled up her life. And now all of a sudden she was supposed to stay home, so she couldn't deal with that. Other people, it was because they tested positive. Um, it's been a whole variety of people, but actually the numbers of people now who, are, who have or are certainly contemplating suicide, or what I call covicide, um, is increasing Because the longer we are made to stay inside, and some people are all alone, Um, you know, there are things that drive people crazy (laughs) when they're with their family, but it's even harder when you're all alone. So that is actually something that is becoming even more prevalent. And then last week, I did a show, How to Save Yourself and Your Loved Ones from Coronavirus. And I talked about things like um, the WHO being hypocritical. And although they had made a diagnosis that went into their classification of their book that classifies uh, disorders, they had included not, you know, one or two years before they had decided to include gaming disorder, uh, which is uh, video game addiction, as one of the mental disorders. So, okay, they did that fairly recently, and then just now they decided to team up with, and I I would be willing to bet anyone, that um, there's money involved. WHO needs more money. Um, The video game companies have a lot of money. And uh, now, all of a sudden, they've changed their tune, the WHO, and they're saying um, a part, they're telling people to, to if they have that, video games are a great thing to do when you're in isolation. That you connect can connect with people over the internet, and um, they are great. Now, uh, there are some positive video games. There are some non-violent video games, um, and that's fine. But most of the video games, including some of the companies who WHO partnered with, uh, some of them produce the most violent video games. So that hypocrisy is really bad because we depend upon the WHO now. With coronavirus, we we have been looking to, to them for guidance. Of course, they kind of started off um, being making mistakes by not acknowledging that it was a pandemic earlier uh, on, and clearly that was political, something to do with their relationship with China, and um, they didn't want to acknowledge. Uh, that That coronavirus was a pandemic until way after they should have. So now they're screwing up further by telling us all to play violent video games. What's wrong with that? And yes, I want to mention it again because this is super important. Um, what's wrong with that is that uh, study after study has proven that the more violent the more violent media you consume, the more violent or aggressive you become, which doesn't mean that you are all going to become serial killers, but it does mean that the people who do consume a lot of violent media, you know, television, movies, and video games, will become more aggressive. So that would include things like, uh, possibly like, um, child abuse, domestic violence, road rage, things like that. So when we all come out of this and we all walk out of our homes, open our doors, those people who have been spending the weeks and months playing video games will be a lot more aggressive when the rest of us are feeling rather battered, you know, happy to be able to go out, but still um, rather impacted from all that we've had to endure, being scared of of, um, catching coronavirus. You know, stay being isolated, all of the various things that we have endured. So, that is going to be bad. And, um, I will undoubtedly talk more about that at some later time when it's closer to coming out as to what we can do. But for now, for now, uh, don't play any video games or at least don't play, don't play any violent video games. If you want to play other video games, be my guest. Alright, so today, <laughs> So that was the uh, that was the last thing, and I was talking also about. Um, well, I talk that in that one. Uh-uh. Uh, besides, let me just say. Besides the, um, this, oh, the pranks. That's right. I was talking about the dangerous pranks that people were playing, where they pretended to have coronavirus and coughed on produce and and so on. Um, and and I was talking about that particularly because the show was March 31st, and April 1st was, of course, April Fool's Day. So now this comes brings us to today, where, again, the topic is Medics and Medicines, the Real Story. Now, before I get into that, um, I do want to tell those of you who haven't Heard me say this before because it's very important. You know, I'm not just a psychiatrist spouting off about these things. Well, in regard to the violent video games, um, my credentials include being chair of the National Coalition on TV Violence, having testified before Congress four times uh, about media violence, um, and many other things. You know, protests at movie violent movie theaters, stopping the NASA the NASA rocket that was going to have an ad for Schwarzenegger's movie, The Last Action Hero, and so on. I have spent many years protesting media violence. Um, But anyway, in regard to coronavirus, um, I not only have an MD, but um, I also have uh, a master's in public health, and at the same time that I was receiving that, I had a fellowship uh, awarded to me by the National Institutes of Mental Health, and I studied the use of media to prevent and treat physical and psychological problems. So with these additional uh, credentials, um, I, that adds to my knowledge, not only about being an MD and a psychiatrist and so on, but uh, particularly about epidemiology and, and coronavirus and how to talk to people about coronavirus. Because what is happening in our country... Oh, it really, it really um, frustrates and pains me to hear this and talk about it. Uh, I, I want to make sure you're all aware of this. Um, there is so much politicizing now about uh, coronavirus, about what to do, what not to do, uh, who's right, who's wrong, um, all of that. And one of the main one of the main issues um, that have has come up is um, in Trump, President Trump's um, press conferences, daily press conferences. Uh, the question of certain medications have come up. In particular, a medication called hydroxychloroquine. That is a medication that is used to treat malaria. And it has been approved for many years. And, um, it has been, uh, it is not only President Trump who's, uh, you know, suggesting that we use that, but also, uh, Dr. Oz, <laughs> you may, or whatever, whatever it is that you, um, you know, I, I know some people think that maybe he's just, um, a TV talk show doctor, but he, you know, he, he is a doctor, um and Peter Navarro, who doesn't have MD credentials, but he has said that he has a PhD in uh, social science. I mean, that's not a doctor. I'm just trying to say that I am not the only one in the world who thinks this. Um, Now, so why... So I'm going to tell you, now I'm going to talk to you more about this and why we should be using this. I'm not saying, you know, that this is a cure-all, but I am saying that um it is a relatively safe drug because it has been around for a very long time. the fDA approved it uh, ages ago to treat malaria. It's not like some uh, strange drug that you know <laughs> some um, <laughs> some i don't know some somebody in their back in their basement cooked up um, and and the, the the tragedy of it is how because of politics, um, the mainstream media does not talk about this except to say, you know, to use it as another example of why President Trump is wrong, he's not a doctor, and he doesn't know what he's talking about. And, you know, I mean, it's just like, it's just in the whole long line of things that the mainstream media often finds as a reason to criticize President Trump. Now, that's all fine and dandy if it's not something... Um, you know, if it's just political views. But this is much more serious. We're talking here about people's lives and depriving Americans, because it's being used in other countries all over the world uh, for COVID, um, but depriving Americans of it because of political reasons is a crime. And perhaps, uh, perhaps there will be lawsuits after this is all over, by people, families of people who died, and so on, who weren't able to get this medication. So now, now also, um, I, I want to mention that not only I'm going to tell you more about this medicine and so on, and, and you know, so you can have uh, a more informed opinion of it. But um, I also want to say at the outset um, that part of the problem it isn't just about Chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, and chloroquine—it's uh, not just about that. I have been, uh, perhaps even in some of my, in some of my previous uh, Dr. Carroll's Couch episodes, um, but I certainly have been talking about this in other interviews. I've been doing pretty much non-stop uh, television and radio interviews and print uh, about this, trying to help people with their stress from coronavirus and everything else. And um, I have been mentioning uh, fairly often that um, Dr. Anthony Fauci is doing a great disservice to our country by being at those daily press conferences, you know, and then of course if he's not there, then people want to know where he is Um, and, you know, is it because he had a spat with President Trump and all of that. I mean, this is such minor, this is really ridiculous stuff to be uh, thinking about, talking about. Um, you, I mean, compared to what we should be talking about in regard to coronavirus. So, um, he, Dr. Fauci, has been the voice of gloom and doom. And um, aside, not nothing, aside from, I mean, the uh, hydroxychloroquine is just one aspect. He's been putting that down. He's been trying to say that, um, you know, he's been poo-pooing it as something that we should use um, or how good it is, how useful it will be. Uh, and, but, but besides that, just in, in regard to anything, he repeats and recites numbers every day. The most, I don't know where, he must spend a long time looking for these numbers because he finds the most, uh, deadly, literally, uh, and gruesome and scary numbers that are to be had about coronavirus. Now, somebody must not, he must not have taken Psych 101 or, um, or you know, in medical school, uh, well, in college or medical school, because, like, he apparently never learned that stress causes the immune system to be weakened, and weakened immune systems cause us to be more vulnerable to catching coronavirus or anything else for that matter, from colds to cancer. Well, apparently uh, we have to take a break. But when we come back, I will give you the whole story about hydroxychloroquine and particularly um, one to talk about how politics are, you know, are, are, have gone have, have gone over the top in terms of now causing deaths, really, um, but also, in case you or someone you care about does get a positive coronavirus test, um, you need to know about this so that you can ask your, you can tell them about it, or for you yourself, you would know about this so that you know whether you want to ask a doctor to take it yourself or give it to someone you care about. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. and welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about coronavirus medics and medicines, the real story. Uh, after I finish telling you about uh, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, um, I will tell you about doctors and nurses, what they're feeling and why. Um, but this is, uh, let me get into the, um, this hydroxychloroquine story. Quinn. <laughs> so, first of all, um, I was mentioning about Dr. Fauci, who is a, um, a, an infectious disease specialist. Um, I actually used to call on him back in the day <laughs> when um, I was worked as a producer and host at Lifetime Medical Television, and I used to call on him a lot when it had to do with asthma or infectious diseases, and I was always happy that he was so eager to come on whatever show, you know, I wanted to ask him to come on. So I, I have had a good feeling towards Dr. Fauci up until recently. Uh, and as I said, because I feel that he is stressing people out, pict- drawing, pointing uh, a picture of uh, doom and gloom, which is, which is making us stressed out. Now, I understand where he's coming from. He comes from an academic and a scientific background, um, and he, where he wants to dot his I's and cross his T's before he puts himself on the line by recommending a treatment. So if a medication hasn't gone through months or years of trials, clinical trials, he's afraid to tell people to take it. But meanwhile, we are at war with coronavirus. Thousands are dying. And we can't let one man's obsessive compulsiveness or fear of being wrong and being blamed for side effects or death from these medications stand in the way of saving people's lives. So now all people would have to, all doctors would have to do with this, these medications or any medication that is not FDA approved for the specific disease that it's being used for, um, you get patients to sign a consent form and that has all the risks and the expected benefits, and um, you don't make... You don't make I'm, not, I'm not suggesting here that we make patients take anything, really, um, but that, we, that they have the choice, and, and uh, I, I really think that, uh, especially as people get to the point of having to be hospitalized that they will feel desperate and want to try anything that has a promise of helping. So um, so if, if patients just had to sign consent forms, that would take the problems away. And most patients would say a resounding yes. So, um, so let me tell you this backstory now about uh, these drugs, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. They are older medications. They were approved um, more than 70 years ago uh, and widely used to treat malaria, lupus, and rheumatoid arthritis. Now, doctors in the U.S., because we don't have so much malaria, um, we doctors here are not that familiar with that drug, although they may well be using it, of course, for lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. Um, now, this is considered using a drug that has been FDA approved, but using it for a different disease is called off-label. Anything that the um, anything other than what the FDA originally approved it for. So now there have been um, there have been uh, anecdotal evidence. There has not been any huge clinical trials, you know, the way that they are usually done. But there have been um, stories, uh, reports by doctors and hospitals of success in treating COVID-19 patients, um, which include things like reductions in the number of patients who need to be hospitalized, less need for ICU and intubations, and lower death rates. So now, for example, in France, there were studies performed. Now, these aren't huge studies, but there are people doing studies in various countries, and they found that um, these medications helped the symptoms of the illness and helped to shorten the period that a person was infective, which, of course, would be uh, infectious, which, of course, would be great in helping to control the spread of the disorder. But now, once President Trump announced at a recent Corona Task Force briefing that chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine showed hope, all of a sudden he was jumped on, and, um, and he was mentioning it in regard to some studies that he knew about from Johns Hopkins and from France and at least eight other countries at the time that he was mentioning it. Now, one of these examples is a Dr. Vladimir Zelenko, who is a board-certified family physician in a small community in New York State that had a lot of coronavirus infections. And he has been using a combination of hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, zinc, and vitamin C. And he treated almost 700 patients in an outpatient setting. And he had remarkable results. Zero deaths. Zero intubations or ventilators needed, and only four patients needed to be hospitalized due to pneumonia. Now, there has been um, these various uh, doctors or hospitals or studies that have been using these medications, um, combine slightly different uh, com- make it in slightly different combinations of these medicines. The combining. One or more of these together: chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, um, azithromycin, zinc. Some use vitamin uh, D as well as vitamin C, and um, but it's it's basically it's this general group. Now Norman Cousins um, used vitamin C to treat himself, to cure himself of a lethal disorder. And he also used, it was vitamin C, IV, and um, uh, comedies, uh, videotapes of comedies as for his every waking hour. So it was, you know, his opinion was laughter was the best medicine. So it was that combination. So, and that was several years back. Um, and so it's not like these are new... <laughs> You know, new ideas that somebody just cooked up for a uh, coronavirus. Um, so now, the thing is that that uh, governors and um, like governor Cuomo, for example, has has restricted this treatment to only hospitalized patients and only. Um, I mean, it's, it varies from day to day, so it, things might be different when you hear this. But basically, different governors and different uh, uh, elected officials are making their own rules in regard to what is okay and what isn't rather than leaving it to the doctors to do. Now, there are, you may be familiar with some medications that are being used all the time off-label. For example, there's a medication called which the the generic is amitriptyline, and that was first approved for depression, and now it's being used for nerve pain as well. Trazodone was approved by the FDA for depression, and now it's also uh, widely used at lower doses for sleep. Viagra, of course, is for erectile dysfunction, but it's also used to treat pulmonary artery hypertension. And then, uh, then some others. Then, uh, in psychiatry, the medications Depakote and Lamictal, for example, those are anti-seizure medications, and they are used to control uh, mood swings in um, people with manic depressive illness. So, you know, it's it's common. It has been happening through for years and years and years that uh, a drug that was approved in these clinical trials for one particular disorder or disease. Um, have been found by anecdotal evidence to be successful in something else. So now, on March twenty eighth, twenty twenty, the FDA issued an emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine to be used as approved treatments for COVID, but only in a hospital. Now, and, and still limiting it, because not everybody, there are still reports, you can't just walk into a hospital and get it. I mean, it kind of depends upon which state you're in, for example, because some of the governors have outlawed it, have t- said doctors can't prescribe it. And, in fact, um, some doctors have been, have been uh, receiving penalties for it. Now, there was a recent poll of more than 6,000 doctors from 30 countries and 37% of them um, rated hydroxychloroquine as the best treatment for coronavirus. Now, that doesn't mean that the rest of it, <laughs> you know, the rest of the percent um, said that it was bad. But um, not, you know, not all these doctors have had experience with it. So 37% of 6,000 doctors or more have acknowledged and um, t- uh, the medication to the point that they're saying it's the best treatment. Now, um, in the meantime, doctors across the United States have been receiving threats from many governors and state medical boards for prescribing it and prescribing azithromycin off-label for non-hospitalized COVID-19 patients. So not only are they having their medical decisions blocked, but they're being threatened with disciplinary actions. I mean, this is really scary. And some of them are even being threatened with the loss of their medical license in some states. So now, when politicians start playing doctor, we are all in very deep, you know what. Um, now, looking at other countries, um, as I was saying before, Far fewer American physicians; only 23% had prescribed hydroxychloroquine, while 72% of Spanish physicians used it as their first choice. And um, and in the U.S., it was again it was for the hospitalized patients and in, in the only used or most commonly used. And in these other countries, it was used also for outpatients. So. If you only use a medication, any medication, for someone who is in an extreme state of the disorder, the disease, then your success rate is going to be far less than if you were able to use it earlier on in the disease. And um, hydroxychloroquine has been used for malaria since World War II, and as I said, also for treating lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. And um, more than 10 countries have shown that it works both before and after the uh, virus enters the cells. And then um, the idea for azithromycin, adding that, um, what it seems to do is have a synergistic effect with the um, hydroxychloroquine. So... Now the point is that yes, it would be nice to have randomized clinical trials. That is where you divide patients into at least two different groups. You give the simplest way of doing it is you give one group the medicine, you give the other group a placebo, and then you compare them in their um, in their side effects and in the success of the treatment, how well it treats the disease or the disorder, and so on. But it takes these things take months and really more often years to do um, randomized clinical trials. And um, there are things in the meantime that are going to be happening, um, you know, if we don't put it in, you know, when when war happens, there are things that are used in war. This has been historically um, in all the wars. There have been medicines and different kinds of treatment that hadn't gone through clinical trials before, but because the, the, um, the disease, the disorder, the problem was so serious and was um, killing troops and, and um, making troops debilitated so that they wouldn't be able to fight and so on, that lots of medications and lots of treatments have been used before in wars as an emergency, Without all of these, you know, dotting the i's and crossing the t's, because there was a war and there was no time. Well, we have a war right now <laughs> on coronavirus. I'm talking about wars, you know, um, the, there are troops uh, with coronavirus who um, are being uh, are being sickened by it, and in all different places all over the world. And what does that do? <laughs> You don't have to be uh, a brain surgeon to realize that that means that our troops are weaker in various countries and various places that we have troops that we think we need them, and they are getting sick. Not everybody, <laughs> not all the troops, but to the extent that they are getting sick, and also they, you know, they bunk in close quarters, to the ext- and they are not close to um, lots of ventilators, for example. So the more troops who are going to get sick or die, the more our country's defense is weakened. And that is a serious, urgent problem as well. And that, in fact, um, does give President Trump even more uh, power in terms of deciding or recommending what could be used. He's not actually prescribing it for a specific patient, but he's trying to tell the world that, yes, there are studies that have found that this medication and perhaps this cluster of medications are useful and that we should use it. Not We shouldn't wait until the person is half dead, but we should use it before uh, while they're still outpatient so that they don't become inpatient. So we're going to take a break now, and when we come back, we'll talk about doctors and nurses on the front lines, what they're feeling and why, and what they should do to keep well. So stay tuned.
2: VoiceAmerica.com.
0: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll free at 1 866 472 5788. Now back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And
1: welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host. Dr. Carol Lieberman, and your Master's in Public Health, and your NIMH grantee, and so on. Not to forget that, since we're talking about coronavirus. Um, For the rest of the show, I'm going to talk to you now about the medics part, the doctors and nurses and other medical personnel. Um, Have you been wondering about, well, perhaps, you know, there are doctors and nurses and medical personnel listening, and if you're not... Uh, one is, one such, um, perhaps you've been wondering about, uh, I think everyone really has been wondering about how someone could willingly put themselves on the front line. Like, what bravery, what courage it takes to do that. And um, it is amazing. Um, and so, um, they are feeling, you know, I've been doing some I actually have been offering pro bono psychiatric uh, crisis intervention for doctors and nurses. And and so I have been hearing about uh, what they're feeling. (laughs) And it's a whole combination of things, of emotions. And, of course, it depends, you know, just like anything, um, it depends on who you are before whatever the challenging situation is as to how you're going to feel about it. So, um, you know, why they became a doctor, uh, what they had to go through to become a doctor, to get their diploma, to go uh, through an internship and residency. You know, the harder it was to succeed in that, to finally get to the end and have your medical license, um, the more you know, the, the stronger the emotions will be, both positive and negative. So now some doctors are going to be thinking, and nurses, I'm going to say doctors, but you know what I mean, nurses and other, other medical professionals. Um, some doctors are thinking, yes, this is why I became a doctor, to save lives, and here's my chance to do a lot of good. Like, you know, this is sort of a romanticized view when someone thinks about being a doctor. I mean, when I decided to become a doctor. It was when I was eight years old, and um, I read a book about Elizabeth Blackwell. She was the first. She was from um, England, but she was uh, got her medical degree here in America. She was the first American British-American um, woman physician, and she opened up a clinic and helped poor people. And it was very um, romantic, and it was very, uh, you know, I loved the idea of being able to help people. And um, then when I was a teenager, I read uh, Sigmund Freud's book, The Interpretation of Dreams, and I ultimately went on and studied with Anna Freud, his daughter, and I went to London to study with her. And... Um, so that was, you know, when I read his interpretation of dreams, uh, it spoke to me, and it was sort of things that I had been thinking about, but obviously not at that sophisticated level, but all, all, it all just made sense to me, and it was really exciting, and so I decided I wanted to help people as a doctor in that way, as a psychiatrist. So, but before I became a psychiatrist, um, since I went to medical school at the University of Leuven in Belgium... Uh, that was a five-and-a-half-year program, and so then for the next year and a half, you were supposed to um, do a sub-internship, which I did in the States, and that is a year and a half spent doing uh, internal medicine, surgery, pediatrics, and OBGYN, and after that, I did a whole straight medical internship, and then I went on to my psychiatry residency. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning all of this is because Um, I treated people in ICU and in, you know, with all different kinds of medical conditions. So that is how I am able to empathize and understand what these doctors and nurses and so on are going through. So um, on the one hand, they are proud of themselves that they're risking their own lives to care for others. But underneath, they can't help but also be, unless they're in denial, (laughs) which to some degree they are and they have to be to go in every day. So underneath, they're somewhat fearful that they will get sick themselves, uh, especially as there are more and more news reports of doctors and nurses dying from COVID-19. Now, doctors do... <laughs> You've heard it said that doctors have a God complex, right? Um, so doctors do feel that they or that they need to be or want to be a hero and to rescue everyone. So then this makes it especially hard um, for them to see patients dying from COVID-19 because, in other words, it's somebody who they lost. And then, of course, they're working around the clock now uh, and they have this feeling that they don't keep working. They're letting their colleagues and their patients down. But, you know, if somebody works around the clock, I mean, we all get exhausted, <laughs> doctors too. And so uh, and that, of course, exhaustion makes them more vulnerable. You know, not getting enough sleep makes them more vulnerable to catching coronavirus. So it's, it's really um, uh, a, a vicious cycle. And then they need to keep up some bravado so that people don't worry about them, especially like their families. And um, they worry about getting other people sick now that they've been exposed to coronavirus. Since um, since they could be asymptomatic, uh, or they you know they might have been tested one day and then the next day they catch it, so they don't know that they actually are positive. Um, there also it just depends on where you are, but in some places there aren't enough. PPEs or personal protective equipment so people uh, medical personnel in those circumstances are angry understandably that they're <laughs> that here they are putting their life literally on the on the front line and they're they're not getting uh, the appropriate necessary personal protective equipment so um then also they're angry that there aren't enough ventilators and other medical supplies to help them save more patients. And then uh, depression. The longer they work, the more depression starts creeping in. And some are even having suicidal thoughts because they're feeling overwhelmed and they're feeling helpless and hopeless uh, the more patients who are dying on them. Now, some doctors um, are not in ICU uh or are not seeing as many patients dying as others but um but still uh you know it's just a very hard fight and they are undoubtedly seeing some deaths and it's just the numbers of patients are just overwhelming um then so what should doctors and nurses do to keep well well <laughs> the uh the basic thing that they need to do to, to do to keep well is what i've been telling you all to do uh, in my previous shows, which is the basic advice that your mommy uh, gave you or should have given you, and it's the advice that doctors and nurses give to patients, which are to eat nutritious food, take vitamins and immunity boosters, get enough sleep and exercise. Now, when you're working around the clock, what you usually um, eat <laughs> is uh, whatever is in the vending machines, um uh, because you you know it 's not like you have time to go out to a restaurant or even to order out i mean that's when you're lucky if you get a break uh, long enough to be able to order out but normally, you just go to the vending machine and I would always uh pick like um chocolate stuff like uh hot chocolate chocolate milk hershey 's chocolate <laughs> uh you know not the most uh nutritious kinds of food, and there aren't really <laughs> there aren't many nutritious kinds of food in these Uh, Foods in these vending machines. Um, They need to take enough breaks. They need to reach out to friends and to colleagues and loved ones. Um, They, of course, you know, it's hard for them. They don't want to admit many of them to their colleagues just how just how they're feeling. They don't want to seem anything um, less than than brave and courageous. They don't want anyone to feel like they have to take over for them. Um, Now, one key thing that doctors and nurses can do to help patients and to help themselves to feel like they are really making a difference, even if the patient dies, is when they have a patient who is on a dying trajectory. That may be uh, a day or two days um, where they see that the patient is going downhill. It's important early on to get some telephone numbers ready uh, of who the patient wants to call when it is closer to their last moment so that they can give the patient some FaceTime or at least a telephone call because the worst thing about coronavirus is dying alone. Um, usually it is only a doctor or a nurse, not the family who is with coronaviruses, uh, coronavirus patients when they die. So helping them to communicate with their uh, person or persons who mean the most to them is an incredible gift. Um And then of course, uh, to get psychiatric crisis intervention online or by phone with a psychiatrist, specifically with a psychiatrist because only psychiatrists are, psychiatrists are the only psychotherapists who are MDs. So needless to say, an MD would be able to understand more about all the details of what they're going through. And that is why I have offered to and am offering to give doctors and nurses uh, crisis intervention and um, pro bono for free (laughs) and to try to help them stay sane and safe on the front lines. And that is what I am wishing for all of you, too, uh, to stay safe and sane. It is not easy in um, this time but um with a little work a little, you know little concentration to things like things that I've told you in the earlier um in the earlier shows you know particularly the first one when I was talking about stress syndrome I went through a whole bunch of things you can do to stay safe and sane um and if you do test positive and you do want to try the um hydroxychloroquine And, and the whole little uh, group of other medications that go with them. Please tell your doctor that you have heard about this, that you want to try it, that uh, you don't want to wait until you're hospitalized to try it. If you don't, I'm not talking. I don't mean to talk you into this, but at least have a conversation with your doctor about it, and hopefully you will be in a state or with a doctor who is okay about um, giving it to you even if you haven't been hospitalized yet so that they can try to nip this in the bud. You can tell them that you heard about it on Dr. Carroll's couch and then they can call me. (laughs) And I will do crisis intervention on them for what to do when patients are all asking you for hydroxy. (laughs) And and you're afraid about uh, prescribing it if you're in a state where they have been threatening doctors. So thank you for listening to um, Dr. Carol's Couch. And I do hope that you stay safe and sane uh, until we talk again next week.
0: Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.